Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. Always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about thriving after trauma. Nothing can stop us from living a life that we want. And no, we're not going to get over it. Trigger warning advised. Today, we're going to talk about incest and abuse. Sherry Botwin, welcome. One thing that you mentioned in your book is that people come to you in your practice for one thing and it leads to something completely different. And it takes people sometimes a while to even figure out that that's why they're there. They don't even know when they call me sometimes that the reason they're really there is what they're telling me a year or two years later after we met. Because people with history, not even just trauma, but people who've experienced different events, sometimes you push it so far out of your consciousness that you don't even know it's something that's affecting you or bothering you. So it's not always for people who repress. Sometimes just people push things so far away as they go through therapy and they become more aware than they realize, oh God, that thing with my dad or that thing with my mom or when my house burned down when I was a kid, it takes sometimes talking and processing to figure it out. Interesting. You know? Sometimes I'll be like, oh, I just got a referral and it's just a piece of cake. She's just anxious about her boyfriend or whatever. And then a year later, I'll be like, oh my gosh, this person has one of the worst histories out of anybody I've ever seen. Happens a lot. I also found it to be really interesting that sometimes parents bring their kid there and then they're responsible for them being there. It definitely happens. And sometimes they realize it through the therapy that they are part of the problem. And sometimes they get so mad when they realize that the therapist is figuring it out. They pull the kid out. They sabotage. They pull the kid out. I've had that before. I also really like in your book, like how long-term relationships you've had and how you've gotten to see people through different chapters. I love it. That's why I love my job. I do. I love that part. Oh my God. Okay. So you did bring up that the reason you can talk to people and put yourself in their shoes is because you yourself have been in their shoes. Do you want to start there? I still, when you just said what you said, even about being able to put myself in other people's shoes, I still am in those shoes in the sense that I'm 51 years old. I've been counseling patients for 25 years. I started my recovery from childhood abuse when I was in my mid twenties. As I get older, as I go through the work more, I still feel like I am working through parts of my own history. So I never feel like I left the role of being a patient. I was in therapy. I still am in therapy. I took like a year off of therapy during the pandemic because I hated the video. I hated not being able to sit in my therapist's office. It stirred up a lot of issues for me. So I actually just decided to return to therapy after taking a year off. But I've been in therapy my whole adulthood, basically, and working through different aspects of my history. So I survived childhood sexual abuse. I was abused by a family member. I repressed it. From what I know and what I've remembered, the abuse started from when I was probably like three or four. And it didn't stop until I was in my early 20s. So what happened was I went to college. I would come home for break in the summer, move back home after I graduated college. And then six months after that, knew I had to get the hell out of my house. Had no awareness of why or what was wrong, but just knew something was really wrong. And then I started going to graduate school for social work. At that time, I didn't know I was going to be a therapist. I thought, well, I'll probably work in like a school 
or I'll be a social worker with like the grandmoms and the grandpas because I love old, I used to love older people. I just love them. I had a great relationship with my grandfather and my grandmother. So that's what I thought. I thought I'll be a social worker. I'll be out in the community. So I graduated with my master's in social work two years after I moved out of my house. And my first job was working in an eating disorder inpatient facility. When I heard about the job, I was like, yeah, that sounds like something I would really like, but I had no idea what was going to happen. It ended up probably being the thing that helped me to save my life working there because I recognized that I had an eating disorder, which I had no idea. I knew I needed help. People were telling me that I work with, you probably should go to therapy because they could see that my reaction to things that were happening to patients, they could see how traumatized, but that's such a generic word. They could see that it was affecting me so deeply. And I wasn't even really telling them everything. There were nights when I left work and I would go home and I would, I don't forget this. I would sit on this chair that I had, I had two cats at the time and I would just stare. Like I would go into like a semi unconscious frozen like state. I would just stare. I would, the TV would be on, but I don't know what I watched. And that went on probably for about six months. Then I started thinking about suicide. And then I was thinking, why, why? Like my life is not bad. I loved the job. I didn't live at home anymore. I felt good about my situation. I was independent, paying my own way at 23 years old. So I was like, why do I want to like run my car off the road? This doesn't make any sense. These different thoughts that I had and my colleagues sort of being like, you probably, if you're going to do this work, you should go to therapy anyway because it's such hard work working with people who are so sick. Then I started going to therapy. And I think you probably read this in the book. It took me a couple years to tell Dorothy why I was actually there because I didn't know. So I was one of those people that called her. I was like, yeah, you know, like I work at this place. It's really hard. But in general, I would say everything is great. So she probably was thinking what I think sometimes like this is a piece of cake. You know, this is a therapist. She just wants to like get a little help being a therapist, but a couple years later, everything just started coming back. I went home one night to see my parents. I went just to go like for dinner and I just burst into tears. I was hysterically crying. I had no idea what was wrong. And then I started not wanting to see them and feeling like sick, sick to my stomach. Cause you feel a lot of your emotions in your body. It took me probably like six months of being after that incident, when I broke down hysterically crying to actually like find words and tell my therapist what actually really happened. Oh my and then that process of uncovering, we call it in therapy, which is when memories start to come back. It's repressing memories is when you forget to the point where you really have no awareness. So when you start remembering, it comes back very fragmented, disorganized. It doesn't come back like they show in a movie where you see the vision of what happened. That's not how flashbacks work. It comes back in a feeling. So I started feeling sick all the time. I felt scared. I felt violated. I felt all these things in my body. And I was like, what is this? So over a lot of like months of hard work and crying and hating my therapist and feeling like you don't care about me because those were all projection like feelings from my family. I stuck it out and I said, you have to keep going to see her and you've got to figure this out because it didn't make any sense. Why would I feel so mad at her? She didn't do anything. She didn't do anything, but she was like the mom figure, the authority figure. And I just hung in there and I kept going because I knew that I wanted to live a good life. And I knew that I wanted to write a book. I knew I wanted to be a therapist at that point. I had started seeing patients in my private practice. And I thought, I am not going to let this ruin my life. Yeah, and I, I used heard to, you say that you wanted to live a complete life. Yeah. Do you think living a complete life involves finding your voice and telling your story? I think you almost have to. I don't think you can live your full life and not. And again, how do you tell your story is going to be different for everybody. Not everybody is destined to be a therapist or write a book or sit on your show. Some people tell their story through their art, through their singing, through their poetry. So it doesn't have to look the same for everybody. But if we don't face whatever happened, it's going to continue to wreak havoc and it's going to continue to make us feel like we can't trust people. We can't trust ourselves. 
it just, it makes a big mess out of everything. Honestly, when you don't speak, when you don't know. I'm curious too, how yeah. did your therapist react? She's a very empathic woman. She's very visual. And I grew up in a family with a mom that was very cold and stoic. So when I started speaking to Dorothy about what was done to me, she was very teary. She would get very like quiet. She didn't like try to fix it. She didn't tell me, why are you saying that? She didn't question me. She just sat with me. She sat in the pain, but she also reassured me that we were going to get through it. She said to me, I'm not sure how we'll get through this, but we will, because it was a mess in the beginning. It was such a mess. It was just, I was a mess. I was so difficult, I think, to work with because I was so angry and took so much of that anger and shame out onto her. She must've had a lot of good support too. She probably talked to colleagues to try to figure out what the heck is going on with my patient. And I think together we just decided we were going to make it through. And once you make it through the speaking, the telling, the sort of like knowing, then you start moving into the process of reclaiming and grieving. And that's when the happy, hopeful stories you're reading in my book, I think that's what keeps people going because they start to see how different life can be. Like I started learning that I could trust people. I started trusting myself. I always had goals and and dreams, which made me a hard worker. And when I think of people with trauma histories, I think there's the, like the bravest, hardest working people you could ever meet. Cause the people who make it out of these horrific situations have so much strength and determination. And I think that that's what makes surviving trauma possible. And not everybody survives. I've met some people who I don't, they don't survive because they're so damaged and they're so in their pathology that they become like an abuser. I've seen that with people. I've definitely seen that. Not a lot. Whoa. So, oh yeah. Because when you're in therapy with somebody, patients bring their stuff. So sometimes the transference, the identifying the therapist as being like a parent or an abuser makes patients act abusive. They can be abusive towards their therapists. Most people can work through it, but there are some people they can't, they're so in it. They're so self-sabotaging, self-harming, self-hating that they end up sabotaging the therapeutic relationship. So it doesn't, it doesn't happen a lot. I think if that happened a lot, I would have quit 20 years ago, but that is very painful and difficult to deal with because I know it doesn't have to be that way, but some people just, that's just what happens. That's why I think abuse is so cyclical because the people who don't look at their histories or understand, they end up repeating it with therapists sometimes, with husbands, with their children, towards their elder parents. This is just like what happens. Right. It seems that when people sometimes get in abusive relationships, they end up in another abusive relationship. Right. right. And you know, I do see this and people who've been in abusive relationships, I think will understand this. Sometimes when somebody is in an abusive relationship, they also are an abuser at times. It's not always so black or white where you hear stories about domestic violence. And what I see behind closed doors is that I think abusers attract to each other sometimes. That's what I've learned. And I think when I look at my younger self, I think I could see that before I started doing this work, because look at how I acted to my therapist or look, look at how I treated some of my friends, like in my late teens, early twenties, when I didn't know what was going on, all that anger is so displaced and it comes out onto the person that you're sitting with that you trust. A lot of times people with trauma histories, they don't feel safe enough to channel it towards the people that hurt them because they're scared of them. I was scared of my parents years after I didn't see them anymore. If I think about seeing them and my dad, he died 19 years ago, so I'm not going to see him. But when I think about seeing them and I think about what I felt when I would maybe see them after I hadn't seen them for a while. I was a 29, 32 year old adult, but I was still terrified. So all those feelings until we work through them, they get, they just get directed onto the person that you're spending time with person you trust the most 
the person you identify with. So that's why I feel like this work is so important because you can change that if you're willing to face it. In some ways, I feel like your therapist must have been a remarkable person to get you to share with her that. I don't, I mean, honestly, her eyes made me want to talk to her, her teary. Oh my gosh, she looks like she cares about me. She didn't really even say anything. It was just the way she looked. It was like, oh, this is what I would have always wanted. When you go through something awful, I think the worst part is not having somebody there after to take care of you in it. And oftentimes, you know how people will say, all I wanted to do is see my mom or talk to my dad. You know how like, that's how you feel. It doesn't have to be trauma. You could have a fight with your boyfriend. You could get fired from your job. Your kid is making you nuts. It could be anything. And you just want to call your mom or go home to your dad. I think that her being able to convey that sense of caring and showing me what was missing was what made me feel comfortable enough to speak. And I heard you say that as a kid, even that's all that you wanted. All I wanted. And I used to feel like a weirdo, like you're such a weirdo. What 13 year old kid is fantasizing about going home with their English teacher? This is what I used to say to myself, 13 year olds are like, I mean, they weren't on the phone (laughs) or they were on the phone, but a real phone or playing Atari or like going to the mall. We all used to go to the mall. And I just used to fantasize about going home with my English teacher because she, she seemed like, oh, this would be the mom I always wanted. And I used to then say to myself, you are such a weirdo. You are crazy. This is what I used to say to myself. Now I realized I can't believe I felt like a freak. Now I feel like I know 50 other. I know, like, I know like 50 other people through patients I'm thinking flashing through my head who have said the same thing. And I'm like, oh, I wish somebody would have told me that at 13. Because almost everybody I work with who doesn't have that with their parents tell me that's one of the parts that they grieve the most. So I'm like, you tortured yourself. Why'd you torture yourself? But I didn't know. I didn't know at 13. I didn't know. I never told anybody. So how would I know? I didn't know. And then I did read on your social media that at 14, you did attempt suicide. I did. And that day, that day, January 5th, every year comes and goes. I hate it every year. I think as soon as the ball drops, I think, oh God, we got to go through that day again. No matter how many years later, I hate that day, even though I deal with it differently now. And I find ways to speak, comfort myself. It's such a sad day because when I look back, I did not want to end my life. I just wanted to get out of my house. I just wanted somebody to save me, but I didn't know what I needed to be saved from. So when the ER doc comes in and starts asking me all these questions, it's like, and my parents are standing there. It was the worst feeling ever. If anything, it made it worse. It made it worse for me because then they wouldn't leave me alone. They made me feel bad for feeling that way. Like I was an inconvenience to them. It was awful. So it it was like trauma on top of trauma. That makes sense. You called the police, right? I called my best friend and said, I just took a whole bunch of pills. And then her mom called 911. But I think I knew if I tell my 13-year-old best friend, somebody's going to, I remember thinking in my head, I need, I need help. I don't want to have just taken those pills. And then the first thing I said to the ambulance, can you not call my parents? So please don't tell them. And I was 14. Please don't tell them. Do you have to call them? So that's the stuff that I hate every year on January 5th, like remembering all that. That's sad. It is sad. Oh my God. Did you feel that way again in your 20s? Anytime I would remember something new about what happened to me, because usually I would remember not just like a day, but I would remember things like having unwanted pregnancies. Then I would remember having miscarriages and all the trauma that came with that. Then I would remember what I felt three days after whatever happened, happened. So when I would remember stuff, I would remember it in big chunks, like a chapter of a story. Then I would go into what I used to call like a shame attack four, five, six weeks of feeling like I shouldn't have said anything. This was a waste of my time. I don't know why I'm still here. I hated myself. I wanted to disappear. But there was a part of me also that wanted to be a mom that loved my dog, that loved my job. I never acted on it. I would feel it. And I would never want that for somebody feeling like you want to disappear is the worst feeling ever. Even if you don't want to act on it, it's horrible. It's almost like the world stops. Everything stops. The sun goes away. It's 
dark, it's lonely, it's scary. I mean, there were times where I wouldn't get in my car because I didn't feel safe to drive. So I didn't get in my car. I'm like, just don't go in your car. If you're thinking that you're going to hurt yourself, don't do it. And I would stay, I wouldn't write. I would take my dog for walks. I would reach out to friends and say, can you meet me in town for coffee? I didn't always even tell people because it wouldn't be appropriate to tell a friend some of this stuff, but I would reach out to some of my colleagues and say, I just want to give up. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have said anything. And they kept saying the same thing over and over. That's how you feel right now. But it's not the speaking that's the problem, Sherry. It's what you're telling yourself and your therapist. That's what the problem is, was, and you'll get through it. That's what people used to say to me a lot. You got to just hang in there. You got to keep warrioring on. Wow. I give it to you. Oh, that's amazing that you're able to share all of that. I love sharing stuff now because I can share it with some humor, with some, like there's so much light in my life that it's not as painful anymore. So when I talk about it now, I'm not going to say I don't feel things, but I feel so much hope and optimism. And I love all the stuff that I watch in my work. I love the people that I meet most of them because I don't love it. I can't love everybody. Nobody loves everybody. I can't help everybody. Let's just put it that way. But right. that's what flashes through my mind now when I tell my story. I don't just go back to whenever the suicide attempt was. What I do when I talk about my past is I keep my feet in the present because I don't want to re-experience it. I don't want to re-traumatize myself and I don't want to re-traumatize. I don't want to traumatize other people. I heard you say too, that you used to really have a hard time, like calling yourself an incest survivor. Yeah. That took me a long, long time. And then, you know, I wouldn't go public with that until for a little while I would say, yeah, I survived childhood abuse. And then I was like, that's not, I mean, yeah, that's what it was, but that's not what it's called. Call it what it is. So when I started writing the book, I knew before I wrote the book that I was going to put it in there because I wrote an article about being an incest survivor a few months before I started writing the book to see how it felt. Like, let me see how this feels. Let me sort of try it out. And it felt free. It felt, it felt like I can sit with this. I can digest this. It's okay. I mean, I feel nauseous right now when I think about it, but, and then that's the part of me that just still feels sad. And like, there's always going to be a piece of me that's going to think, really, that's really what happened. But that's just part of what people feel, I think, when they go through really hard situations. And it's okay that there's a part of me that still doesn't want to believe it. As long as I talk about it and I don't disown it. As long what as I don't. The hardest part, I would imagine it would be facing the perpetrator and yeah. what yeah. other people would say. I don't see anybody connected to my incest anymore because they don't want to hear what I have to say. They did not believe, or I did not feel as though they wanted to, they could accept the truth. So I don't see them anymore. But if I did see them, I think I would still be afraid, but I think I would also be mad. And I think I would be strong in myself and be able to say to myself, that's their issue, not my issue. If they don't want to hear what I have to say, that's about them. That's not about me. But I choose not to have disbelievers in my life anymore. I choose, I, that's the path that I chose. It was the only way I was going to make it out. Because when I would see people in my family, when I would see people affiliated with my history, I wouldn't be able to function. I couldn't do it. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't go to the gym. I couldn't see my friends. I had a dog and I love Chloe. I took her for walks, but I don't remember the walk. I was so out of sorts. You know, I was so despondent. Probably took me about five years to realize in order for you to really live a life, you're going to have to pull away. And that's not everybody's story. I've met people who've confronted their perpetrators, who've been able to keep people in their life that have hurt them in their past. I've met people who face all different kinds of trauma and people associated with their history and have, you know, made amends. So that's wonderful for them, but that's just not the way it was going to go for me. But you did tell your perpetrator, I know you did this. I did. I did several times. And I also did it with compassion. I still remember one of the first times I sat with him and I saw his face and in my heart thinking, this guy is so sick. I felt bad for him. I did. I thought I would rather be me than you because how do you do that to somebody and live with yourself? How do you, how? So when I think of different people who've hurt me or my patients, I work with them on not feeling bad for them in a like, 
woe is me, woe is you, but more like part of healing is being able to look at the person and think you are not in a good spot. You are not a well person. You put things in me or you said things to me that were had nothing to do with me. That was about you. And to almost think how sad for that person, because that person has their own history. You know, abuse is cycles. It goes from one generation to the next, to the next. I broke the cycle in my family, I believe, but it, it's not like that for everybody. Let's talk about how you broke the cycle. I decided I'm going to become a parent because in my late thirties, I still didn't have a boy. Well, I had had a boyfriend who broke up and I'm like, all right, Sherry, you're like 38 years old. What are you doing? You can't like not have a kid too and not be married. You got to like, you got to live your life. So things got delayed for me because of my history. Right. So I decided, you know what, what I'm going to do? Cause I always wanted to be a parent is I'm going to have a kid. And I didn't know it at the time that becoming a parent was going to help me to break the cycle, but that's what broke the cycle. Watching myself parent differently than I was parented, watching myself with a little infant, changing his diaper, watching myself with a a vulnerable little person and realizing I would never want to do to him what was done to me. Being able to put myself in the role of a perpetrator and actually understanding some thoughts that they had and realizing that that's part of what makes abuse replicate is when you don't own the thought and you don't claim it. And also I think breaking the cycle for me is about reclaiming my right to still get in touch with my childhood feelings, but through my own kids' experience, being able, like just even listening to him on the call, I love it. I think it's the most cutest thing ever. Like I love kids. They're so fun. I do feel like becoming a parent though, definitely brings up your own childhood. So a lot of times what happens for people is they have a kid and then they start realizing, oh, I feel very fortunate that I did that work before I became a parent. Because I think if I had had a pregnancy and then uncovered, I think I probably would have been a horrible parent. I wouldn't have been able to stay present. I don't mean horrible, like abusive, but just, I would have probably ended up in the hospital. I probably wouldn't have been able to take care of him at times. So I feel very fortunate and grateful that the way my journey sort of unfolded was I was able to face stuff in my twenties and then be older. Like I had him at 40 and it's a little old, I guess, in some ways, but I think it's the best thing for somebody with my history to have waited until it was the right time. You have chosen to be a mom through science, I heard you say. Mm -hmm. Which is nuts, totally nuts. But you know what? It was one of the best experiences. If I had had a partner, I would have had a kid with the the guy. Or I thought for a while about adopting, but then I was like, but why I want to be pregnant? Why can't I be pregnant? Why shouldn't I at least, I decided I'm going to try and get pregnant. If I can't get pregnant, I'll adopt. But it took me nine, well, it took me almost a year to get pregnant. So I was 40 when he was born, 40 and a half to be exact. I figured if it was meant to be, it'll happen. And the doctor was very optimistic. She was able to diagnose me with a a clotting disorder as a result of my history. I was able to tell her about miscarriages. So because she could figure out why I had the miscarriages. I could then have a good pregnancy. Oh yeah. I want to talk about that a little bit too, because you did mention this in your book. Yeah, I did. I, this is one of the saddest parts of my history, but it's the one that I feel is the most important really, because without being able to understand my history, I wouldn't be able to have a kid. So your pregnancies were caused from the incest. And so what happened was I had miscarriages And at the time I didn't know they were miscarriages, but I know what happened, if that makes sense. And that's part of what I worked through in therapy was, oh, I wasn't just late for my period. I was pregnant because some of the pregnancies went into the 12th or 13th week. One landed me in an ER. And I think the doctors knew I was having a miscarriage, but I was silenced by my mom. She told them not to give me a pregnancy test. And I also told them, do not give me a pregnancy test. I don't sleep with people. So they couldn't actually call it a miscarriage, but I repressed the incest, but I did not repress the miscarriages. In some ways I did the opposite. I actually remember, like I could sit down with the doctor and go through what I felt, what I thought I could tell her all the symptoms leading up to the miscarriage. So in a way I did the opposite. I actually like kept such tat, like such close memory of those experiences 
so that when I went to see the fertility doctor, she could say to me, I don't think you had miscarriages just because it was incest. I think we should run a panel of blood work because I think you have a clotting disorder. That's what I think you have. And this disorder that I think you have, you can't hold a pregnancy unless you're on, like I had to take blood thinners. I had to give myself injections of heparin or Lovenox twice a day. And I had to start doing the medicine as soon as I started trying to get pregnant. So in order to have a pregnancy, I had to do certain things. And I also had to do a couple other things the first trimester. So because she was an amazing listener and she could hear, you know, my history, she could tolerate it and not look at me like I was crazy. She ran that panel of blood work. And I was devastated when I found out that I had the disorder because it sort of confirmed that what I remembered was true. I really did have miscarriages. Like I really had miscarriages and that threw me into a few months of a severe depression, but it also helped me to like, be like, now I can get pregnant. I'm going to get pregnant. That's so crazy. Mm. Another interesting thing about your podcast is you did a father's day edition and a mother's day edition. And I heard you say that you're the father and the mother. Yeah. I mean, I don't really feel like a father, but I'm both of the parents. Yeah. So on father's day, my one very good friend, Sandy, every year says happy father's day. (laughs) That's great that you're laughing at that. I love that. That's amazing. And I think I tell him too, what are you going to get me? What are you going to make me on Mother's Day? What are you going to buy me for Father's Day? I said, it's my holiday, both of them. Another thing that I really liked on your Father's Day edition was that you said, if you didn't have the father that you think that you wanted, write a letter to one. What would you write to a father? Have you done that? I've spoken it. Have I written it? No, but have I done it? I've done it through probably like doing the podcast or talking. I've never actually sat down and done that. I think there have been, oh no, I know there have been times where I've met different people, especially since becoming a parent. I will say to other men, you're such a good dad. And let me tell you why I think that. And like, so that's my way of doing it. Like I, I have lots of friends who are in wonderful marriages. Mostly I've met through him. And I'll say to like Amy, his wife, or to him, Sagi, what you just did for your kid, that's the best thing you could ever do. You're such a good dad. Your kid's so lucky to have you because you don't judge them. So I do it like that. Another thing, of course, that I have to ask you about is being a therapist to Bill Cosby survivors. So I wasn't a therapist. I was an advocate. Uh, What happened was I read about, or I listened to some of their stories and I wrote an article for the Philadelphia Inquirer as a way to say, like, I admire these women. So what ended up happening is they saw because of social media and they reached out to me. So I served as like, I was at both of the trials and I sat with them and I talked to them. I couldn't really be their therapist because I was more like friends with them, their voices help me speak more. So the way I look at them is they are part of what helped me to call myself what I am. If they can sit on a stand or tell a newspaper or tell their husband, Bill Cosby raped me, then why can't I say that I'm an incest survivor? He was one of the most loved people in the world. So to me, that is like, if you can do that, then you can speak about your history. So that's sort of the role they played in my life. I was a big part of many of their journeys throughout that whole process. And it went, it wasn't just the trials. It was before the trial, because it takes a while for it to go to court. I'm sure you know that I wrote that article in 2015. The trial didn't actually start till 2018. He got arrested at the end of 2017. I mean, I would say I counseled them, but more in, in as an advocate and a friend. And you got to sit in the courtroom, right? I did. I was there for the whole thing. And I planned to go. Any of that that you can talk about? It was traumatic at times. It scared the crap out of me. He scared me. He was scary, Bill Cosby. His supporters were scary. He never had. Yeah, there were people in the courtroom that were saying mean things to us. They thought I was one of the survivors. So they would say things because I was with the survivors a lot in the hall, in the courtroom. I mean, you see pictures of him, but what he looked like in court, he was just, he looked like a stone cold without any remorse. He laughed a lot when they talked about what he did to them. So I felt scared and I felt sad, but I also felt so much hope for these women that had the opportunity to speak. I worried about some of the women because some of them I could see were traumatized by being in the courtroom. Some of them, I think, really struggle still because they didn't get the help that they needed. 
They didn't get the help they needed when they needed the help. They stayed silent for 30 years, some of them. So it was very emotional. I'm so glad that I went, but there were times when my therapist and my friends would say to me, are you sure you're okay with this? Are you sure you can do this? Cause it affected me. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and be like, Oh, I was strong. And th- I broke down at times I had flashbacks, but it was healing. It felt like it was the right thing. I wouldn't change any of it. The part that was the hardest for me was when they took them away in handcuffs. I think what happened was I, the part of me that felt like I got my perpetrator in trouble, even though nothing happened to my perpetrator, I felt bad for him, which made me so mad. Cause I'm like, why do you feel bad for him? He should go to jail. But I felt bad for him after I watched him get taken away. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just watching him walk in the handcuffs. He took his jacket off. It was like, there were so many people, everybody was watching Nobody said a word. You couldn't even hear a pin drop because if you said a word, you got thrown out of the courtroom. I was afraid he was going to come find all of us. And it just triggered me. Were the victims afraid too? If you asked them, they would say yes, but I don't remember them saying that. They were more emotional, like uh, relieved. There was lots of crying, lots of cheering, lots of yelling. It was like a huge amount of emotions all at once. I don't know as months go by what they felt because that's not something that we've talked so much about. But I think if you were to ask them today, because it's been a few years now, I think they would say they were a combination of relieved and scared and mad. And rightfully so. Oh my God. Did they get to say anything to him? Four of them testified in the second trial. Then what happened is they didn't get to give victim statements because they weren't in trouble. They were just witnesses. So they couldn't confront him in court. The only person that could speak to him directly was Andrea Constan and her mother, father, and sister. The other survivors were witnesses. When you're a witness, you don't get the opportunity to give a victim statement in the state of Pennsylvania, at least. That's just part of the law. So what ended up happening was the day he was convicted, the guilty verdict, because he didn't go to jail right away. There was a press conference and maybe 12 or 15 of the women, some who didn't get to testify in court, that was their chance to speak, but they didn't get to say it to him directly because he didn't come and watch them. He doesn't care. I would love to know your thoughts too on the Jeffrey Epstein case. I didn't follow it as much. It made me sick. When I heard about it, I remembered the day I found out he killed himself or allegedly commit suicide. Those poor people who don't get an opportunity to have closure. The recent story with Ghislaine Maxwell infuriated me because that's the piece of my history that I have trouble with too. The enablers, the silence keepers, the disbelievers, the abuse doesn't just happen by one person. It's a whole system. For me, it was in my family. For these women, it was not just Jeffrey Epstein. There was a whole bunch of people for the Nassar women, the gymnasts. There were a whole bunch of people who refused to accept the truth, who knew Nassar could have been abusing these girls, but didn't listen. So that stuff makes my head spin. And a lot of times silence keepers, disbelievers have their own set of pathology. Usually they're very narcissistic. There's a gain that they get from keeping it a secret. They benefit from it, whether they're getting paid by the perpetrator, which I believe Cosby did that to people. He paid people to shut them up. I think Jeffrey Epstein might've done the same thing. There's a power thing that comes from that. When you're part of the perpetrator circle, you get lifted up from the perpetrator. That's part of the pathology. You're made to feel like a hero because you're protecting the perpetrator. I think that the recent thing with Maxwell is a hopeful ending of another horrific scandal. And I think that that's, that makes me feel hopeful that maybe we're going to start holding these enablers and accomplices accountable. Trauma comes in all shapes and sizes and is often discredited by the victims themselves. What is the most common reason given by trauma victims for discrediting their experiences? They think what happened to me was nothing compared to what happened to Sherry Botwin or what happened to one of Epstein's survivors. That's what they do. They, and I think, you know what? I think it's a defense mechanism. I think trauma comes in many different shapes, sizes, forms. And when you say to yourself, yeah, but it wasn't that bad. That's just another way to not have to deal with the impact of what it actually was. And I think it's a common defense mechanism for people, especially people who survive more subtle traumas. Like not everybody goes through sexual assault 
or their house burned down. For some people, trauma is finding out something about themselves or watching their mom be sick or it could be anything. It's not always the biggest deal in the world, but it is for you if it's something you went through. Yeah. Even in your book too, like you mentioned, you know, you could be having a good marriage and you could come home and you could lose your husband, a sudden heart attack, or you could get in a bad car accident yep. or a nine 11 victim or. Yep. And you know what people say? I didn't die in the tower. So it's not so bad. Or people will say if somebody's husband dies, suddenly they'll say things like, well, yeah, but at least I had it for all those years. And it's like, listen, what just happened is horrible. I know you don't want to have to think of it in that way, but you shouldn't have to go through any of that. And your experience is just as important as the person, the next person who might've had it worse. And you know what I always say to people, there's always going to be somebody out there that had it worse, quote unquote. And there's always going to be somebody out there that maybe didn't have it so bad. If it broke your heart, if it left you feeling stranded, if it left you feeling like your life was going to end, that's a big deal. And that's what you need to focus on. That's part of what you need to grieve and that's what you need to heal that part of you definitely oh this one's for my bestie oh yeah Jeannie Lopez how do you advise victims to deal with those who say that they're lying or that don't believe them piss off how do you <laughs> that's what I say I say how do you deal with it you tell yourself if that person chooses not to hear the truth that's about that person. There's something going on in that person's life that makes them not be able to know. And I am not going to take that on. Depending on the relationship, you may have to set some boundaries. You may decide not to be friends with that person. In many cases, what you decide is, well, I still want to be friends with that person, but I can't share more about my trauma with this person because they're going to say things that are going to make me question myself. So I'm going to set some boundaries. I'm not going to share parts of my life with this person anymore because this person is incapable of hearing the truth. You don't take it on. You know that there are a lot of people in this world who don't want to think that bad things can happen and people have very strong defense mechanisms. So what you do is you just try really hard to separate from it and not let what that person says change the truth. Because people, especially with abuse histories, are quick to judge themselves, question themselves. Maybe I made it up. Maybe it wasn't so. It's like, no, your memories don't, your feelings don't lie. You're not making it up. Some people just don't want to accept it. And that's on them. I love that. I love that you said that your feelings don't lie. And like, no, we don't make up what we feel. Your internal antenna doesn't lie. No. And your body doesn't lie. What your body feels and your intuition doesn't misguide you. So you have to stay connected to the fact that that's what you have to focus on. And there's going to be people out there that are going to try to mess you up, try to tell you it's not so, and you're not going to be able to avoid that because as far as we've come in our world, in terms of dealing with horrible things happening, because we have come a long way, especially since COVID, there's still a lot of people out there that just can't tolerate anything that's upsetting, that's scary, that reminds them of their own stuff. That's going to be in the world as long as there's human beings. That's just, you're never going to be able to change that. It bugs me when yeah. people aren't believed. Like it's horrible. Why would a young girl come forward and be brave enough to share right. something like that and be judged? And if it didn't happen, I will be honest with you for many people, that's worse than the abuse itself. When you finally get the courage to speak up and then you're told, who do you think you are? How could you say that? That actually from a lot of trauma survivors is worse than the actual rape, assault, whatever horrible thing happened. A guy asked Dylan Busby, what are your thoughts, if any, on the effects of trauma on DNA and can that be inherited? The trauma response, I think, could be inherited the way sometimes people live in a state of like hypervigilance or a state of like sort of being in PTSD. I don't think it's in DNA so much. I think it's in experience. I think like we were saying before, it's more generational, cyclical in terms of environment. So the I look at it more in terms of the environment. I talked to somebody earlier today whose grandfather was in the Holocaust. He was one of the people that went around and got rid of some of those Germans right? He was telling me today how his experience of living through that, seeing dead German soldiers and realizing they were just people too, not having money in the depression, how that affected his parenting. And then we were talking in our session today about how his dad's parenting affects him in his role as a dad and also in his ability to feel worthy of having good things. 
He's 60 years old and he was telling me today, I don't feel worthy of all that I've created in my life. And we talked about where that came from. We were saying some of what he believes was inherited from his dad's messages. He internalized, he internalized some of those messages. What about the children of Holocaust survivors yeah, too? Same thing. A lot of them grow up in families where their parents, they can be very controlling. They can be very abusive. I mean, cause a lot of them have PTSD. They can feel afraid to trust people. They cannot want to identify as being Jewish because it's not safe. It's definitely an issue because many of them did, they didn't get help. I mean, I'm so lucky that I was able to get the help that I got. They all needed the same help that I got, if not more, and they didn't get it. So all those memories sit in their bodies and in their hearts. And then the children are traumatized by their trauma because sometimes parents will tell their kids details of what happened to them. And that traumatizes them that I will never do that. My kid will ask me questions and he'll ask me more and more. I'm sure as he gets older, I will never tell him the specifics of what was done to me because I would never want him to have to picture his mother being raped by a family member. I talk about the feelings. I talk about the impact. And I think Holocaust survivors, I think part of their processing is needing to talk about the specifics of what they saw, but sometimes they don't do it in the right place. That needs to happen in a therapy group or in a therapist's office or in a support group, not with your children, even your adult children. Does your son know what happened? He doesn't know I'm an incest survivor. He knows that I grew up in an abusive home. He knows that my family is not my life. Um, it's funny that you asked me because I'm like, I wonder what he would say if you'd ask him. I think he would say my mom has PTSD or my mom has trauma. He probably would say that partly because he has to sit and listen to me. <laughs> I wait till he asks and I, over time I share, he wants to read the book. And I said, no, you're not reading that book. Not yet. I said, when you're a little bit older, I'll read it to you. But, and I'm not going to read him the whole book. I'm not, he doesn't need to hear all that. I think that would be hard, but quite a bonding experience. Yeah. Like it's not necessary. It's necessary that he understands the hope and the healing, but he doesn't need to know the, the trauma. He doesn't need to know the gory details. Neither do I. Andrea asked, what advice do you have for people that have been through PTSD? Get help in any way that you can. If you can't afford to go to a therapist, go through an organization that offers PTSD support. Go online and look for groups that address PTSD. Read books. What advice do I have? Understand that it's a process that you may never fully be free from PTSD, but you can live a full life. Just know that like, you're not the only one and that it will get better and that you can learn to live with what happened to you, no matter how horrible it was. You can learn to live with it. You don't let go of it. You learn to grab a hold of it and take it with you and not let it keep messing up your life in the present. Do you feel like you've been able to forgive? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I send well wishes to my family every day. I just don't talk to them. Whoa. But you can't forget if you forgive and forget you're, you're going to have PTSD a lot worse. Cause then you're going to have flashbacks. You're going to re-remember stuff that you forgot again. What I say is you forgive, you find a way to feel compassion and empathy for whoever caused harm, but you keep, keep your boundaries, hold your boundaries and move on with your life and replace some of those family members with the people who are more family by choice. Give yourself permission to fill those voids with people who aren't biological, if that's your story, and keep moving forward. Is there anything that you should never say to a trauma victim? Get over it. Why are you thinking about it so much? Stop thinking about it. Somebody used to always say, why do you have to think about it? When I would try to tell her what happened, why do you even think about it? Don't think about it, Sherry. Just let's go to dinner. And I'd be like, first of all, I can't help them thinking about it because I can't control my thoughts, but I would want to take her and throw her out the window. Never say that to a trauma survivor. And you know what else? Never say to them, oh, you'll be fine. You know, then the curse words go off in my head. It's not fine. It's okay to say, you'll make it through. We got your back, but don't ever say, you'll be fine. And don't act like you get it because you don't. Don't say to your friend or your partner, I understand. How the hell do you understand? You weren't there. No, you don't. It's better to say, I can't even imagine what that was like for you because that's more authentic. I can't imagine what it was like to live through the Holocaust. I never was there. And you probably can't imagine what it's like to grow up in my family. It's better to say that. That's I like that. Yeah. 
Wow. That's such good information. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? I mean, he looks so nice. What's it like to be a dad and be proud of your daughter and see her flourish? Because I don't have that. I would want to know that. How is that as a dad for you? Aw, that's so sweet. I don't know what he would say. He looks super fun though. The whole time we're on, I'm like, dude, I want to meet him. He looks so nice. Oh, I hope you get to. Thank you. What's next for you? I want to write another book. I want to be more out there about incest and I want to be getting people to really understand and talk about it because I think even with all the stuff with like these different cases we've heard about and hashtag me too, there's still not enough dialogue understanding about childhood abuse. It's not the same as other types of abuse that we talked about even tonight, like with the Cosby stuff, there are similarities, but there's, it's different. And I still think it's not talked about enough. So that's my thing in my fifties. I hope by the time I'm 60, there's some law that's been passed or some movement that's been started because I said something. That's amazing. Okay. Have an awesome night. You too. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Her question was, what is it like to see your daughter flourish? That's really what it's all about. Rena with her show or Stephanie when she was winning chess tournaments, whether it's Jessica making a tremendous art project. Part of a parent, at least a parent that's trying to do the right thing, is to be able to see your children flourish. It's your continuation. It becomes your legacy. All their accomplishments fall back on you where you've been able to pass on the right wisdom so that your children and your children's children also want to grow and achieve. That makes you part of a positive block. And what Sherry has brought up, and maybe even the title of this episode, is how do you break the blockchain of abuse? And that's what Sherry is trying to demonstrate and has experienced and is trying to share with other people the human factors that go into not only abuse in many fashions and forms, but how to get over it and break it and really understand it. And I'm very proud of her, the way she really is able to touch on the subject that is so darn sensitive. I love what she said about not saying to get over it. Well, isn't that when someone abuses you or a bully picks on you, get over it, it's no big deal because what they're really doing is covering up their own insecurities and not wanting to be reminded of the terrible things that have not only happened to the person, but the abuser wants to forget about it. The abuser wants to be able to demonstrate these really oppressive things. And who even knows? Because a lot of times, people that do this oppressing onto others have been oppressed themselves, where somebody did it to them and they're doing it to someone else. Some people that get abused, then abuse others. I believe that that is the correct correlation to all of this. And especially, look at, she brought up Mr. Cosby. My gosh, I thought he was the perfect black fella, that he was able to overcome prejudice, to get along with all different races, and was a split example to the world. But look what really was going on behind closed doors, that this actor or this person that played that part was nothing close to who he really was and really not the real thing. So really getting to know someone and really have the sensitivity to care about knowing someone and feeling someone's pain is a lot different than saying, oh, get over it. Not that big of a deal. And even if it was, move on. That's not really ever addressing the real problems. You can't solve real problems. You don't really address them and dissect them and understand it all so that not only can you move on, but also the people that are around you can move on and where they can really join with you and help you. And I understand that talking it out and getting therapy really go hand in hand. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Better Call Daddy.